So Colossians chapter 4, we are five weeks in a series called Join the Team. And we're, we're in a portion of scripture that many people in their reading or even in their preaching would probably just gloss over, honestly. It's, it's a list of names that the Apostle Paul mentions at the very end of this epistle to the Colossians. And you know how it is when you read the Bible, right? When you, when you get to the portion that's just a bunch of names, you feel like you're reading the phone book. You know, and especially if you're in the Old Testament, it's like you're reading the Hebrew phone book, which is even more difficult, right? At least in the New Testament, there's some Gentile names that, that seem a little more palatable, if you will. Uh, this is a portion of Scripture that I, you know, I think is rich uh, with teaching because it's people. And just like you value your name, you value your identity, you value uh, who you are as a person... Uh, the Apostle Paul makes mention of several men, as he closes this epistle out, men that were partners in ministry, if you will. Uh, some of these men actually served prison time with the Apostle Paul because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and he just closes this epistle mentioning these men and giving thanks for them and giving instruction regarding them. And so, you know, as you study the Old Testament, there are several times in the scripture where God just records lists of men that did tremendous things. For example, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, David, King David, had, had a group of mighty men that, that were called out by name in the scriptures. And each of those mighty men had something significant about them in their service to King David uh, as he was trying to, to establish his kingdom and, and get to the throne when Saul was, was king. And so we have David's mighty men mentioned in 2 Samuel 23. We have Jesus and his 12 disciples, right? As we get into the New Testament, uh, Scripture is not silent concerning Christ and, and these 12 men that he had the privilege of discipling and mentoring and ultimately leaving the ministry with when he ascended in Acts chapter 1. And then it, it, it is interesting that the Apostle Paul, in many of his epistles, mentions the co-laborers that he had with him. And so that's what we're studying uh, the last couple of weeks. We, we've, we've called this series Join the Team because we believe that everybody that's a believer in Christ can be on the team and serve. We believe everybody that's a believer in Christ brings value to the body of Christ. We may be different in giftedness and gift, different in ability and maybe even different in opportunity, but every one of us are important in God's eyes. And, and Paul recognizes this and, and gives God the glory for these men's lives. And so as we get into Colossians chapter 4, there are 10 names, that, that 10 different relationships that Paul had with 10 different people. Uh, we, we introduced this series a couple of weeks ago with the couriers of this epistle, and their names were Tychicus and Onesimus. And, and then after he gave us a little bit of information about those two men, he talks about the convict. In other words, one of the men that was actually a prisoner with him during this time in Rome his name was Aristarchus. And then this next portion of scripture, we started this last week, is his companions in ministry. Marcus, today we'll learn about Jesus called Justice and Epaphras, Luke and Demas. These were companions uh, that, that had different giftednesses and different opportunities to serve in the gospel ministry. And then we're going to see lastly in a couple of weeks, the colleagues that he had. These were men in other cities, Nymphus and Archippus. And yet, Paul had a relationship with them and had some instruction to them as well. And so it, it's a really cool study. Again, uh, you know, we like to study every verse of Scripture as we go through a book, and so we don't want to skip over this. And so uh, let me pray. 
We'll read the text. Uh, we'll read Colossians 4, verses 1 through 11 after I pray, and then we'll get right into your notes today, all right? So let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for the morning, and uh, Lord, thank you for the time of praise and worship. Uh, I know it's for you, but it is for us, God. It, it encourages us. It, it strengthens us. It reminds us of your promises. It reminds us of your character and your nature and, uh, and just who you are and, and how powerful you are. Just like Cody said, that, that you, are, you are absolutely all-powerful. And, and we confess that. We believe that. We, we live in a world of uncertainty, but we, we know the one who is certain. And, and we know the one that has given us the certainty of his words so that we can know truth. And, and Lord, we thank you for your, your word. We thank you for the word of God that we can study and gain insight and gain wisdom and gain your, your truth uh, in these trying days. And so, Lord, bless us today. Give us what we stand in need of. I pray for our church family that's watching online. God, I love them and uh, I miss them, but I pray today's an encouragement to them and, and maybe even guests that are watching today. May you bless them and encourage them from your word. And we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Colossians chapter 4, let's, let's read verses 11 through 13, and then we'll get into the first point in your notes. The Bible says, and again, this is, we're picking the text up as he's mentioning all of these names in the closing of this epistle. And Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. And then he mentions this next guy named Epaphras, which is one of you, in other words, he's a Colossian, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and for them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. And so, and so we're going to study two men today uh, by the grace of God if we have time. The first man we want to study is this man named Jesus called Justice. And what we're going to see from his life, and, and what we actually see from his life and, and, and a couple of the guys that were mentioned last week, Marcus last week, is he is going to be an example of, of, of someone who is able to overcome cultural and racial barriers for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason that we say that is because in verse 11, he, again, Paul mentions Jesus, which is called justice, who are of the circumcision. And so in your, in, your, in, your, in, your, in your notes, the first blank you want to fill out under that is that Jesus, called Justice, he was one of the circumcision. Now, anytime that word is used in the Bible, it always has a reference back to the Jew, back to someone who's connected with the nation of Israel. He, he's Jewish in culture, Jewish in religion at some point, and then he came to knowledge of Jesus Christ. This may be the exact same Justice that we find mentioned in Acts chapter 18, when Paul was in Corinth, there were a lot of people that responded to the gospel in Corinth. In Acts 18 and verse 7, it says, He departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshiped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. So it doesn't specifically say that this is the exact same man. If it is the same man, we know that this man is a Corinthian, it says that he's of the circumcision. In other words, he's a converted Jew. He, he was Jewish in his tradition, his culture, and his religion, but he was willing to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, he responded probably to Paul's preaching of the gospel and as such was able to now take the gospel to people that were Jewish, but also Gentile in culture and in nature. And, 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 and again, he, he is a picture for us 
of someone that overcomes cultural and racial boundaries for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, when, when we study the book of Acts, we know that early in the book of Acts, God dealt with the nation of Israel primarily in those first seven chapters. Okay, The emphasis of Peter's ministry in Jerusalem was to the Jew, it was to the nation of Israel as a nation, all the way from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 7. That's why you can't apply Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 to your salvation. You can't repent and be baptized for the remission of sins because God is dealing with a nation of people, the nation of Israel. And it's clear all the way from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 7, God's emphasis is on the Jew. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen stands up and he preaches a message to the Jewish leaders. And, and, and the nation as a whole was given one last opportunity to repent and receive Christ as their Messiah. And you know the story from Acts chapter 7. They, they loved that message so much that they gnashed on Stephen with their teeth and they stoned him. And he became the first Christian martyr, okay? And they rejected, and by the way, in Acts chapter 7, something significant is happening. Jesus Christ is standing. He's not seated on the right hand of God. Stephen looks up into heaven and he sees Christ standing. And, and, and some people would say, well, he's standing because Stephen is being martyred and he's, he's honoring Stephen. Well, listen, if that's the case, God is no respecter of persons. And that means that he's never sat back down because martyrs have been martyred ever since Acts chapter 7 for the cause of Christ. And, and other places in the Bible, Colossians tells us, Philippians tells us that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The reason he was standing is because he was able and offering the kingdom of heaven, the, the physical kingdom, to the nation of Israel, and he could have returned right in Acts chapter 7. You say, well, what about us, man? What about the church? Well, it ain't about you. <laughs> Everything would have been fulfilled biblically if Christ would have returned in Acts chapter 7, but we know that the nation of Israel rejected Christ in Acts chapter 8. Philip takes the gospel to the Samaritans, then he also takes it to the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts chapter 9, Saul is converted, who would become the Apostle Paul on the Damascus road. And in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius receives the gospel, and Cornelius is a Gentile. And, and this is an important thing. I know this is Sunday morning, and I don't want to go, you know, I don't want to turn it into Wednesday night deep Bible study, but you need to understand that the gospel went to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Actually, that's the way God said it was going to happen. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul writes and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And, and, and the point is, and, and, and this, is, this is where I'm trying to get, in your Bible, God tells us that there's only three groups of people. Now, now, when you look at people, and I look at people, we look at people differently the way God, than the way God looks at them. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 32, God gives us in one verse the only three people groups that exist in God's economy. He says, Give none offense neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. And so here's a principle you want to get down. I call this a ministry tools and training principle or MTT principle. In God's economy, there are only three groups of people in the Bible. Jew, Gentile, 
and the church. And, and, and a Jew would be somebody who's a Jew. They're part of the nation of Israel. A Gentile would be anyone who is not Jewish. But then the church is either a Jew or a Gentile that has received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? They are in Christ. As a matter of fact, God says that when they're in Christ, they're no longer a Jew or a Gentile. Let me prove it to you. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. Paul writes and he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, And, and I want to just make this point this morning Christ is the end of cultural differences, and he's the end of racial differences and any kind of barrier that would separate us. Christ is the end of those things. We are one in Christ. Colossians 3 and verse 11, it says, Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all... And in all, and the point is that Christ is the end of all cultural and racial differences and barriers. And listen, as as a result of that, listen, our local churches should reflect that. Okay, so, so there's no such thing, man. There's no such thing as the white church in God's economy. And there's no such thing as the black church in God's economy. And there's no such thing as the Korean church in God's economy. And there's no such thing as the middle class church in God's economy or the upper class church in God's economy or the lower class church in God's economy. We are all one in Christ because he is the one that, that breaks down all of those differences. And the reason that's important is because we need Christians like, like justice Jesus called justice, that are able to overcome racial and cultural differences to reach other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, I'm telling you, here is a Jewish converted man that is in Christ, and he's able to reach other people, Jew and Gentile, with the gospel. He's able to overcome what would be a racial and cultural barrier. And how's he able to overcome that? Because he's in Christ. And listen, our churches ought to reflect that. Our, our individual lives as Christians ought to reflect that. Listen, every one of us ought to be able to say and examine our own life and say, okay, what kind of cultural and racial barriers have I overcome because of Christ? And, and our churches should be able to say, and, and sadly, churches are still the most divided group of folks on Sunday morning of any day of the week, by the way. And, and it's not a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not. And, and, and until our churches learn that Christ is the end of all this division and, and you know, racial barriers, cultural barriers, language barriers. Listen, Christ is the end of all of that because we are all one in him. And we have to reflect that in our life. We have to live that out by faith. Okay, so, so what we see is this man named Justice is of the circumcision. Number two, we see that he's a co-laborer under the kingdom of God. He, he is a co-laborer. He, he's a fellow worker unto the kingdom of God. And, and again, this morning, you are getting Bible study this morning because the kingdom of God is a phrase that's found all through your Bible I want to make a note that the kingdom of God is different 
Then another phrase that's very similar to it, called the kingdom of heaven. You have both of those phrases found in your Bible, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. And, and if you've got some white space on your, on your notepad or on your, on your notes this morning, listen, the kingdom of heaven is found 33 times in 32 verses in one book of the Bible. And that book of the Bible is the book of Matthew. And, and so it's very important that you understand that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are different. And again, if you're newer to our church, we teach this quite frequently, but if you're newer, don't let me lose you here. But the kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of heaven, number one, because they're spelled different. God is not heaven, and heaven is not God. You don't pray to heaven, you pray to God. And, and you desire to go to heaven, right? And, and, and so heaven is a place God is a person, obviously. The reason that's important is because in the book of Matthew, it's the only time that you're going to find the phrase kingdom of heaven. The book of Matthew portrays Christ as the king, listen, very specifically, the king of the Jews. And God has a, has, has a promised physical earthly kingdom that is going to be restored to the nation of Israel and our Calvinist friends and, and Catholics and other people in modern Christianity try to take away the literal promises to the nation of Israel, but I'm telling you, you can't have them because they literally belong to the nation of Israel. This kingdom of heaven is the physical kingdom on this earth that will be restored to the nation of Israel. But the kingdom of God is different than that. The kingdom of God, and in your notes, look, the kingdom of God can't be seen or entered into without a second birth. And so this kingdom of God is not the physical kingdom, but it's the spiritual kingdom. And we're going to unpack what this kingdom of God is because this dude named Justice was a laborer in the kingdom of God. And that's the kingdom that we are called to labor in. So John chapter 3 and verse 3 says this, Jesus, when he was talking to Nicodemus, Jesus answered and said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. And as you read that discourse, Nicodemus is like, man, how can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter into the womb the second time? Nicodemus was thinking physical birth. And Jesus said, yeah, no, 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 we're talking about spiritual birth. John chapter 3 and verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, physical birth, and of the Spirit... He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so, and so this kingdom of God is the spiritual part of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is what Jesus Christ taught on for 40 days after his resurrection. And we don't have the time, but if you go back to Acts chapter 1, when Jesus resurrected and he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs, he was seen of his disciples for 40 days, and he spoke to them the things concerning the kingdom of God. Why? Because the spiritual kingdom was going to become the point. Israel had a chance, early Acts, Acts 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. The physical kingdom could have been established, but they rejected it. And so here's the last key in your notes. Look, the kingdom of God, and I abbreviated that. Obviously, K-O-G is not a word. Cog, okay. That just means kingdom of God in your notes. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom, but the kingdom of heaven is a physical kingdom. 
This is why this is important. Your understanding of the kingdoms from the Word of God will dictate what you focus on in ministry. And let me just explain it like this. If you believe that God has called us to establish some kind of physical kingdom right now, then what your ministry focus is going to be on is building schools and building hospitals and punching wells so that people can have clean water. And listen, all of those things are fine. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But those things are not the focus of the kingdom of God. The, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 21, it says, When he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo here, or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is where? It's within you. It's a spiritual kingdom. Romans 14 and verse 17 says the kingdom of God is not. Listen, here's what it's not. The thing that you're looking forward to in the next 20 minutes. It's not meat and drink. I know everybody's like, okay, I'm, I'm getting hungry, Jay. Get going. Okay, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not physical things, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. I mean, you're not going to roll out of here as soon as we get done with church, hit the drive through and say, I'll take a number one, add, add a little peace to that with a side of joy. You're not going to roll through the drive through You're going to get a little meat and drink. You're going to get the physical things, but you're not going to get those spiritual things through the drive through Does that make sense? It's a spiritual kingdom. Matthew 6 and verse 33, and I just want to, you know, I want to just prove to you that this is really the, the point of the kingdom of God. Jesus says in Matthew 6 and verse 31, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? And we all thought about those things this morning, right? Are they going to have donuts at church? What am I supposed to wear? And is the coffee going to be ready? I mean, that, we already thought about all of those things. I actually got panicked. It was like 1030 and there weren't donuts sitting over there. And I started texting people, like, where are the donuts? Okay. And the Lord says, you shouldn't be taking thought for that. But, I, you know, okay, I repent. <laughs> Look at verse 32. For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, and the these things are the things that you eat and the things that you drink and the things that you're clothed with, the physical things. Well, these things will be added to you after you seek the kingdom of God first. Okay, okay so the point is, the, the point is, justice, Jesus called justice, was a fellow worker in the kingdom of God. And we've learned that the kingdom of God is something that has to be entered into through a spiritual birth. It's the kingdom that's within us. It's love, joy, and peace, and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. And so the question is, are we laboring in the right kingdom? Do we, can we look at our life and say, you know what, I, I am a fellow worker in the kingdom of God. And listen, we have a lot of guys that do a lot of things at this church, man. We have guys that paint and 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 put in windows and clean the gutters and clean the curbs and, and, and change light bulbs. And listen, there's, there's a lot of physical things that we can focus on in the name of ministry. But I'm telling you, the labor that God is really interested in 
is labor and work in the kingdom of God. And that's reaching people with the gospel and helping them grow spiritually. Does that, does that make sense? And all the other things, man, the schools and the hospitals and the wells and all that. Listen, those are important things. They're not, they're not bad things. But they're not the kingdom of God. We, we can't do ministry without the gospel. We can't do ministry without discipleship. We can't do ministry without, without training and discipling men. And so this man was a, a fellow laborer with Paul in the kingdom of God. It, 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 he, he, he was focused on the right things at the right time. And then, and then thirdly, we find that justice was a comfort unto Paul. He was a comfort. He, he says in the same verse, which have been a comfort unto me. And of course, he's talking about all those guys, but we're just using him as an example. Look, these men comforted Paul. And I think it's important that when you, I think it's important to realize that when you're a fellow worker with other fellow workers in the kingdom of God, you're able to comfort each other. In other words, you become a helper, not a headache in the ministry, right? Uh, okay, don't look at your neighbor right now. I mean, but, but listen, ministry is tough. Paul's in prison at this point when he's writing this epistle, and God is able to give him comfort through other people that are still laboring in the ministry. Can I tell you the best night of sleep that a pastor gets? It's when he knows that his church and his people are laboring together in the kingdom of God. Man, that, that brings such comfort to, to ministry leaders. It, it brings comfort to each other when we're all in this together, when we're laboring together. It brings comfort. Comfort is also a ministry of the Holy Spirit. There's a, there's a few verses, I think, in your, in your text. John 14, uh, the, the Holy Spirit is called the Comforter. And when we labor together, God is able to, to, to help us lock shields and lock arms. And, and we really do bring comfort to each other, man, because we're in it together. So, so listen, does your labor bring comfort to other people or does your lack of labor bring concern to other people? I mean, listen, you know, would Paul be sitting back and say, you know, I'm, not, I'm really concerned about so-and-so because they say they're saved, but they're not really doing anything. They're, they're not really fellow working in the kingdom of God like these other guys are. You know, our labor can bring comfort, but our lack of labor can bring concern and, and, and so we want to be a comfort to each other and to our spiritual leaders. Okay, so, so Justice is a really cool guy because he, came, he overcame some cultural boundaries, some racial boundaries. God used him mightily to minister to other people and also used him to minister to Paul. And then the second guy, and we've got to hurry. You've got to listen faster. It, it, the second guy's name is Epaphras. And what we learn from Epaphras, try to just get like one key thing that we can learn from each of these men. Epaphras is a laborer in prayers. He's a laborer in prayers. And, and I want you to just go back to verse 12 again, and, and let's just remind ourselves of what the text says about Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, he saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. And so again, uh, you know, God gives us just a few characteristics of, of this man named Epaphras. Number one, he's a faithful minister at Colossae. Paul says he's one of you. He, he, here's your homeboy. Hey, remember, he's writing this to the Colossians. Hey, you guys remember Epaphras, right? I mean, he, was, he ministered there with you. He's one of you, right? 
He, he is a faithful minister of Christ. He, he tells us that in Colossians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, that, that he's a faithful minister of Christ. It's very likely this guy was the pastor, one of the pastors at Colossae. And so, and so he may have left Colossae and went to Rome to give Paul an update of the church and to give Paul an update of, of the believers there because Paul had never been there. But listen, this guy was connected to Paul, and Paul was connected to him. And, and Paul goes on record to say, this guy's a faithful minister. He's a servant of Christ, uh, and he's one of you. And so, you know, just a side note, you know, my heart is that God raises up our leaders from within at our church. You know what I'm saying? Like the next, the next, the next deacons, the next pastors that, that come up into our church prayerfully will be some of us. Does that, does that make sense? We, we want to raise our own leaders instead of hiring hirelings from the outside. We, we believe that the local church is tasked with maturing its own believers to the point of being able to minister in the ministry. And so, and so here's an example of, of that. Epaphras is one of them, and yet he's, raised, he's been matured into leadership. Secondly, we see that he does spend some prison time with Paul. He is the fellow prisoner for the gospel's sake, with the Apostle Paul. We see that in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 23. Therefore, salute the Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. And again, you know, he, he, he did enough to get recognized <laughs> uh, by people that didn't like the gospel. Thirdly, and this is where we really want to get to, is we see that he's fervently laboring in prayers. He's a fervent laborer, not it doesn't say kingdom of God. Of course, he's a part of the kingdom of God and laboring in that, but he's laboring in prayers. And again, if you look at the way that the wording is, it says laboring fervently. In other words, the word fervently is used as an adverb. This is how he prayed. He labored how? Fervently. That word fervent means to struggle. It means to contend with. It means to fight. Prayer is a battle. <laughs> That's why most Christians don't do it. I'm just telling you. I'm not trying to get ugly on anybody. I'm just telling you. It's a battle. It's work. It's laborious. It's a fight. And that's why most Christians don't really have a significant prayer life. You know, Jesus with his apostles in Matthew chapter 26, when he is facing his betrayal and ultimately his crucifixion, he asked them in Matthew 26 and verse 40, he says, what, could you not watch with me one hour? And he actually did that three different times. So that tells us that he at least prayed for three hours the night of his betrayal. And, you know, let's just be honest. I mean, most of us, let's just be honest. Most of us don't have a fervent prayer life. But, but we need to learn from Epaphras that it makes a difference when we pray, and we, when we pray the things that God wants us to pray, it makes a tremendous difference. James chapter 5 and verse 16, it's not on the screen, but just listen. Many of you know this verse. The fact that it uses this wording specifically connects us back to Epaphras. James 5 and verse 16 says, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It avails much. And, and the converse of that statement is also true. The ineffectual, 
non-fervent or lack of prayer, it it won't avail a whole lot. We have to learn to become a praying church, which means we have to learn to become praying Christians. The Bible says that he labored in prayers. That's more than one prayer. That's that's different prayers. Like prayers is plural, right? This morning is an English lesson. You're welcome. Coming from the redneck from South Alabama that really did not do well in English at all. (laughs) But I've learned a thing or two since I've read the Bible, okay? And so we see that he was fervent and in, in, in laboring in prayers. And then, and then next we see that he had a very focused prayer. And his prayer life was this. His prayer for the Colossians was that they would stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Okay, so, so God gives us a little bit of info on what he was praying for those Christians at Colossae. How many of us, man, listen, we, you know, one of the reasons we don't pray is we don't understand the significance of it. I think the second thing that distracts us from praying the way God intends is we don't know what to pray. Like we don't know specifically what to pray or how to pray. So we can learn from men like Epaphras and and we see the focus of his prayer was that those Christians, he doesn't pray for health and wealth and prosperity. He prays that they would be perfect and complete in all the will of God. Okay, well, that's really interesting to me. What does that mean that Christians, he's praying for those Colossian Christians to be perfect and complete in all the will of God. Number one, the word perfect means mature. It, it means to be mature. Perfect doesn't mean to be sinless. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, we get a little more insight into that word perfect. The Bible tells us that God gave the church. Here's what God gave the church. Here's the gift or some of the gifts that God gave the church. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. You're welcome. Okay? It's a joke. It's totally a joke. God, get a donut and chill out. It was a joke. God gives the church, the, the, the people that are gifted... These are all spiritual gifts, by the way. God gives the church pastors and teachers, not because they're better than anybody. He gives it to the church so that the church could be perfected. Why did he give pastors and teachers? For the perfecting of the saints. And so God's desire, if you, if you hadn't heard it yet, you want to hear it now, God's desire is for every one of you to be perfect. You say, I can't be perfect. Well, in your mind... You think perfect equals sinless. And that's not the way God uses the terminology. Perfect means mature in the Lord. And so if God wants you to be perfect, guess what he's given you? Well, you got, you got, you got shorted maybe, but you get pastors and teachers. And, and that's enough to make you perfect. That's enough to make you perfect because they take the word of God and preach and teach the word of God, Right? That's what makes us perfect. Look at Colossians 1 and verse 28. Paul writes and he says, Whom we preach, he's talking about Christ, we preach Christ, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And again, I just want to make the point that in order for all of us to be perfect, we need preaching. We need warning We need teaching because we're all going to stand before the Lord one day. And and Paul's goal 
as a minister of the gospel, was to present every man perfect in Christ. And, and if, if you need those things to become perfect, that means without those things you can't become perfect. doesn't mean that you're not saved. doesn't mean that you won't be in heaven for all of eternity. But I'm telling you, it means that you won't be found mature. It, you won't be found perfect in Christ Jesus without preaching, without pastors, without teachers, without warning. That's what we need. That's what all of us need. And so, and so that was the, the focus of Epaphras' prayer he was praying for his church to be perfect, and then he, he wanted them to be complete. And again, Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11 says, Ye are complete in him, in Christ, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom ye are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and the putting off of the bodies of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, Wherein also you're raised with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And so the point is, Epaphras had a very focused prayer life. I want, I want you as the church, as Colossians, to be perfect and complete in all the will of God. Well, that's a pretty good thing to pray for ourselves and for our church. Uh, you know, listen, we, we, we do pray for health. We believe God is the great physician. We do ask God's hand of blessing on our job and our homes and all those different things and his hand of protection. But can I just tell you, the thing that we really need to be praying for is perfection. We need to be praying for perfection for our life and for the life of our church. We need to stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Which leads to the last point in your notes. Hey, what is the will of God exactly? I mean... If that's what he's praying for, you would think that God's will would be clear because he's praying very specifically that they would stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Now listen, if you've ever asked yourself the question, I wonder what God's will for my life is, you came to church on a good day. You came to church on a good day today because, because there are seven things that are God's will. And those seven things are God's will for your life. And by the way, they're the same seven things that are God's will for my life. God's will is the same for every one of us. His plan is a little different. Like, like you may be an engineer, you may be a doctor, a lawyer, you may be a physical therapist, a teacher, you, you may work from home. Listen, the, the, the specific plan of God may be different among us. But the plan of God is inside the realm of God's will for your life and God's will for my life. So these seven things are the seven things that are the will of God for every one of us. And as we, as we close, I, listen, again, you're getting like 16 sermons today. I mean, I can't even help how much material you're getting, but I'm telling you, if you, if you will understand these seven things, one, it'll change your prayer life for your life, for personally for your life, and it'll change your prayer life for your church because these are the things that God wants to accomplish in our church. Number one, it's God's will that all men be saved, not just the elect men because Calvinism is a doctrine of devils. God's will is that all men be saved. All men can be saved if they respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that is the gate that gets you into the will of God. It is the gate, the door, the access into God's will, number one. If, if you don't pass this step, nothing else matters. It's God's will that you get saved. 
He died. Jesus Christ died for your sins on an old rugged cross. He was buried in a tomb that was meant for you. The third day he rose again, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And through his innocent shed blood, God's blood, we can have redemption and forgiveness of our sin. It is God's will that every man receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And then secondly, it's God's will that every believer be spirit-filled. And if you go to the ver- verse in Ephesians, and we're not going to go to all these verses because you know, you, you've, you've already given thought of what you will eat and what you will drink, and you've already cl- you're clothed, so we don't have to worry about that one right now. But, but, I, but I do want to just remind you that in Ephesians chapter 5, as he's dealing with this thing of being spirit-filled, it comes on the heels of not being drunk with wine where is excess. It's in the same verse. And a lot of people, all the legalist Christians would say, see there, man, don't touch the stuff, don't drink the stuff, don't be drunk with wine. Okay, well, it's very clear that we're not to be drunk with wine, but those same legalists don't ever read the rest of the verse that says you need to be filled with the Spirit of God. And so, and so uh, an application of one without the application of the other is still wrong. You cannot be drunk with wine and not be spirit-filled. And the commandment is to be filled with the Spirit. Let the Spirit of God consume you and control you. Let the Word of God and the Spirit of God guide you. That's what being spirit-filled is. Number three, it's God's will that every believer be thankful and everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18. And listen, uh, uh, it's 2020. Have you noticed? <laughs> Okay, now I know all the Bama fans are thankful this morning, and you know, Auburn fans, maybe not so much, but listen, it's 2020, I'm sorry, Auburn fans, it's okay. You know, it is 2020, I mean, we've dealt with COVID, it's an election year, people are crazy right now. It would be real easy right now to not be thankful, and yet God has commanded us, commanded us to be thankful in all things, in everything, every day, because he's still on the throne, and we can, we can, we can trust that, we can be thankful that we are saved. We can be thankful that we have the Spirit of God that seals us. We have the Word of God that guides us. We have a body of believers we can fellowship with. Are you kidding me? Hey, we're still blessed, man. We're still blessed in 2020. Okay. Number four, it's God's will that every believer be sanctified. That word means set apart for God's purposes, for God's use. God wants you to be separated from the world and separated unto Him. That's His, that's his will for your life. Number five, it's God's will that every believer have a submissive attitude toward they, those that they serve. And you say, Jay, start the invitation. I don't want to hear anymore. Okay. God tells us we're called to be submissive because all power comes from God. Government authorities, that Romans chapter 13 is in the book. The powers that be are ordained of God. And I know we're in an election year. And I'm just going to tell you, whoever wins that election, God allowed it. God allowed it. And and listen, we're called to submit ourselves up until it violates Scripture. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. I know that's not popular, and I know, man, when it's not our party's president in office, listen, I understand it, but, but again, God's will is that we submit to those in authority over us. And we could spend a lot of time there. Number, 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 number six is it's God's will that we sometimes suffer for well-doing. Jesus Christ suffered for well-doing. And we will suffer 
His sufferings, if we live like Christ in this world because the world hated him, and by default and extension, the world hates you. And I mean the world system, right? And so, and so it is God's will that we suffer. As a matter of fact, God even tells us that if we suffer with him, we'll reign with him in his kingdom. Which the converse is probably also true. If we don't suffer with him and for him, we probably won't be reigning with him. That's, a, that's an inheritance that we earn. Not that you're going to heaven based on your merit or your work, but your responsibility in God's eternal kingdom uh, depends on, on what you do now. It really does. And then lastly, it's God's will that we, as believers, be one. We, we be unified in Christ. And so I just want to make the point as we close, this was the focus of Epaphras' prayer life. He, he was praying that the church would be complete and perfect in all the will of God. And listen, as you go through those seven things, the truth is most of us would probably say, I don't really pray those things for myself. I don't pray those things for my church family. And that's why you get a small thing of notes that you can hang on your refrigerator. So now you can start praying those seven things for you, and you can start praying those seven things for us. And, and, and let me just, in closing, we don't have any more verses on the screen, but let me just remind you of 1 John. Can you turn to 1 John chapter 5, if you got a Bible this morning? Turn to 1 John 5, verses 14 to 15. The reason that we spent all that time talking about what the will of God is and how Epaphras prayed for those things specifically, the reason why we spent all that time is because when we pray like that, that's the type of prayer that God hears. Okay, so 1 John 5 and verse 14. This is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His, his will. Well, what's His will? It's those seven things that we just looked at. If we ask anything according to His will... And you might want to underline the next three words. He heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. And the point is, listen, when we pray God's will for our life, when we pray God's will for our church family's life, when we pray it for our family's life, when we pray specifically focused the the will of God over and through our lives, number one, God hears that kind of prayer. Which also makes me wonder how much of the prayers do we pray that he doesn't hear. Because sometimes we ask things that aren't according to his will. Many times we do. Use use those seven things as a filter for your prayer life. Listen, we we can have confidence that he hears that kind of prayer And then we can have the assurance that God is going to move in those areas. We have the petitions we desired of him. And that's a tremendous promise from God's word. Okay, lastly, 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 if you go back to Colossians 4, it says in verse 13, Paul says of Epaphras, I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and for them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. In other words, uh, this dude, Epaphras, man, had a zeal. He, ha- he had a, a, an envy. He was fervent-minded 
toward those believers in Colossae, probably because he was the pastor there. But he's also fervent, he's also zealous for the Laodiceans. And I just want to make the point as we close. Listen, Laodicea, the only time Laodicea is mentioned in your Bible is in the book of Colossians. It's mentioned five times, and it's mentioned in the book of Revelation two times. And as you study Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3, specifically chapters 2 and 3, there are seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. The Laodicean church is the seventh church. The last church that's mentioned, and then in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, heaven opens and someone goes up. And if you've been at this church for any amount of time, you know that those seven churches are literal churches in church history. They also represent seven different types of churches, but they also paint for us a picture of the entire period of church history. And the last one is the church of Laodicea. And my point is, Epaphras had a great zeal for Laodicea. He was the guy that just kind of said, okay, maybe nobody else gives a rip about Laodicea, but I do. And what we need in these last days, church, is we need people that have a great zeal for the ministry and the church of Jesus Christ in these last days. Because this is it. We're about to be done. As a matter of fact, we, we, there's a really good chance that this is the generation and you and I will be the people that literally live out the rapture of the church. And, and we can talk about that later and we can get into the specifics of that. We know that Laodicea is the last church mentioned in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, heaven opens, the apostle John goes up, and there is no more mention of the church throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. So we need people with zeal that care about the church and that care about the ministry in these last days. And so in closing, let me just close because we are actually out of time. But let me, let me just challenge you two things. Number one, we learn from justice. Justice was able to overcome lots of different barriers, cultural barriers, racial barriers. He was able to overcome those barriers because of Christ. So what barriers can you overcome because of Christ? And the answer is you can overcome them all if you allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to work in your heart and life. Secondly, we learn from Epaphras, we need to have a powerful prayer life. We need to pray fervently for each other, and specifically, we need to pray for the will of God for each other. And those seven things, again, man, if you, if you come to church here for any amount of time, you're going to hear those seven things over and over and over again, because they're the only seven things that are God's will for your life and for mine. And so let's learn to pray that for each other, amen, and trust the Lord with that. And I think God, God hears that prayer, and God answers those kind of prayers, amen? All right, let's pray.